Welcome to the National Gallery of Art Film Program, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of the art of film. Represented by the media artwork Stemple Pass in the Spring 2018 exhibition Outliers and American Vanguard Art, artist James Benning came to the gallery on April 29, 2018 to discuss his films and projects with Lynn Cook, Senior Curator of Special Projects in Modern Art at the National Gallery of Art. Their conversation was followed by a screening of Measuring Change, one of Benning's landscape films that looked at and recorded Robert Smithson's iconic spiral jetty on the morning and afternoon of December 28, 2015. Um, Let's just jump right in. All right. And you said we could start, well, one of the things we could start by doing is talking about why people make art. Mm -hmm. And in in an interview with you somewhere, you say something like, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to make good films. There are already many of them. I want to make radical films that enter into a discourse. Yeah, there's many um, models to make art by and to make films by. And many of those models lead to things that are very acceptable and and understandable and easily read. And I'm more interested in uh, constructing works that try to redefine the language that exists already rather than to use that language. So um, that's always a tall tall order because that also presupposes that you know everything that's been done. And that, of course, is impossible. So sometimes you think you're uh, working on the edge and you're actually in the center. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm curious about why people make art and I think if, if we think about that question, we can get rid of these categories of trained and untrained and outsider and insider and all of that. Uh, because I think, I suppose each artist works in a different way, but um, the way I work is I set up problems and then I try to find solutions for those. And maybe not all artists articulate that as the model, but uh, if you look at what they're doing, certainly they have problems and they try to solve those problems. And so then how we go about doing that is if if we're a trained artist, we might uh, be confined by a language we were trained in. Mm -hmm. And if we're an untrained artist, maybe we're freer. So, I think artists that are being trained need to uh, unlearn what they learn. By Freya, do you mean more self-conscious? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that a work is made intuitively because I think we all uh, think about uh, the way we work, uh, but we might not actively think. I mean, the thinking's going on. So for instance, if I'm finding a frame for uh, one of my films, I don't say to myself, go to the left a little bit, uh, make sure that red is in the corner. But I'm actually doing that, but I'm not using language. And the way I I move the camera is very much defined through a practice that's accumulated knowledge. So that some people would call that intuitive, but I think it's just thinking very quickly without, without language getting in the way. 
There's, there's, in the writing on self-taught art, there's a paradigm or a trope that comes up uh, a lot and I think needs questioning. And that's that the self-taught artists, particularly the outsider, and there are many forms of self-taught artists, maybe we could say, from folk artists who are working within given traditions. Uh, historically, there are perhaps we would talk more about folk artists in this country than we might today. But um, in terms of the outsider artist, the idea is somehow that this person is isolated, um, solitary, solipsistic, working out of inner desire, inner needs, uh, indifferent to the world around them, and caught up with some form of uh, unmediated expression. And from my experience of looking at a lot of this work in order to make this show and explore some of the questions about the intersection between avant-garde artists and, and creators who have been marginalized for a variety of reasons, it seems to me that model's really uh, unsupportable. And that all the artists who are in this exhibition, I would say, I are strongly involved with questions of communication. And in the <coughs> making of work, the worlds in which they live, not just psychically, but socially or environmentally impact and inform their work, and that the work is directed towards audiences. These may be imaginary or real, but nonetheless the drive is to find, uh, the, the impulse in part is to communicate. And that seems to me that that's something artists do. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Um, about eight or nine years ago, uh, when I um, bought this property in the Sierra Nevada mountains and I tore my house apart and put it back together, uh, and uh, then I was confronted uh, once I finished that construction, what would I do there? And I thought, oh, I'll train myself to, to paint. And I also wanted to, uh, I would have liked to have had a, a Bill Trailer, one of the artists in the show, one of his uh, uh, paintings. He died in poverty, lost a leg to gangrene. Uh, and now his, his drawings and paintings are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So. Uh, it's, that's the irony of his life. And so I started to, uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll copy his work. And when I first began, I wasn't very careful with uh, the way I proceeded. And my paintings looked a lot like his, but they weren't exactly developing the um, negative space on the page like he does. So I realized that he actually very much was uh, interested in the way he would put something on a page, uh, on, on a found piece of cardboard. And he also was very interested in using cardboard that had flaws in it that he could react to those flaws with his paintings. And then I read a lot about him and they were calling him untrained in that. And I thought, well, no, no, he's very trained. He, he was born a slave uh, and, and 
freed at a very young age, but stayed uh, on that plantation working as an indentured servant. And from that, he learned uh, a lot about what the landscape was and how one probably uh, contour plows. And so he may not have been trained about negative space, but he was trained, trained himself to understand the space of landscape. And then he used what he learned from that to position uh, these works on, on cardboard. And once I saw that, I, I thought, oh, I have an affinity for him because he's framing kind of the way I frame with a movie camera and that I, I had to be as careful when I made paintings as I was as framing, framing uh, uh, the camera. And that's when I realized that these definitions of somebody trained and untrained, are, they're not considering what somebody's life is about. And most artists paint from their life itself. So um, I, I think he's a greatly trained artist from, from, from his, I mean, he lived a long life. He started painting when he was first 80. So he had a lot to bring to it. Anthropologists, unlike art historians, talk about um, fireside training, for example, meaning um, that a young woman might, a young girl might learn to quilt uh, from her grandmother or aunts and uncles, mm -hmm. uh, aunts or a mother, and that skills like that or comparable skills for young boys in a family, in a community, that those are passed down and acquired and honed, and that those are skills that go into making of crea creative forms of making, mm -hmm. whether it's a quilt uh, or whether it leads to the kinds of um, heads that James Sunford Thomas made mm -hmm. um, as an adult, which are also in the exhibition. So I, I agree with you, there's, there's forms that one might learn by doing something that has an, a kind of analogous um, handling of a material or a form, and others that might actually be um, conceived of as, as crafts and art forms according to different communities. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the G's Bend quilters uh, are a good example of that. Uh, they started making quilts in the early 1900s out of necessity because it was one of the poorest communities in the United States. And um, because uh, they lived on, it's, I guess it's the Arkansas River and it takes this big bend, so they were, uh, and still are, uh, geographically isolated by the way the river goes. And because of that, um, they, they, they're descendants of slaves and they work that land as slaves as in cotton fields there. And then once they were freed, they too stayed as indentured servants and worked in there. But because of this uh, physical isolation of the river, they kept their African roots and and the they their designs very much and their symbols very much can be traced back to African culture, um, and what I like about them is that they they almost from the beginning made spectacular quilts because of this 
a knowledge of their past and where they were from. And then in the 1960s, uh, the, there was a ferry that went across to Camden, which is a town just outside of G's Bend. And Martin Luther King came there to talk and the w women quilters took the ferry across and went, they were very politicized by King. And then they went back and they started a quilting collective at that time to raise money for this civil rights movement and King was very moved by that. Uh, and then when that happened, the um, powers to be stopped uh, the ferry and kept them even more isolated because they were beginning not to be isolated and they were trying to make some changes and, and be part of the civil rights movement. And indeed they made their way up to, uh, up to Selma and, and, and marched in those marches. Um, but I, I, I think that's very interesting that uh, they, they keep this African culture and then they become politicized also. And when King was killed in Memphis, uh, his funeral was in um, Atlanta, and his castic was uh, pulled through the streets of Atlanta for about a four-mile parade, and many people, blacks in the South went there to celebrate that, mainly blacks. And the uh, two mules that pulled his casket were from G's Bend which is so, so that King's own people uh, recognize the strength of these women. But again, it, it's their quilts uh, uh, were very much part of their life and then they became a way of raising money. And in the uh, 2005 or so, I believe it was, the Houston Museum gave them a full uh, um, uh, museum shows of their quilts, and then I think it went to the Whitney and a few other places, but they're quite a marvelous group. And I'm going to visit them uh, next, in a couple weeks. So Fantastic. I've never been there, so I'm very excited. Well, it seems that one of the things about this isolation was that it, it bred amongst the women a, a sense of, uh, a, a strong desire to make an independent statement, one from another, and that um, a signature or, or a way of working and, and uh, innovating from the given patterns uh, became a, a, a kind of goal or a, um, a way forward for many of them, so that they, uh, by the 90s, where many of them were or, or at least one generation, like um, Mary Lee Bendolf, who's one of the two here, and Annie Mae Young, whose work, who started quilting in the 70s, and whose early quilts don't remain, partly because they got worn out as quilts did, functional quilts, but by the 90s, when they were older and circumstances had changed, and it was cheaper to buy blankets and by quilts, they continued to quilt because it was a social practice. I mean, it, it was part of um, being together, having forms of um, art making, creative expression. And that, so the quilt making itself had gone through different phases and meant different things. And then when the Houston show that went to the Whitney, uh, 
the presentation was in relation not to generic forms of quilt making, but to individual makers. Mm -hmm. So they, for, unlike the shows of the 70s, and there were shows at the Whitney in 1970 and other places on the East Coast, um, this 2002 show had groups of work by, say, 15 makers, and each of them was named and has, um, her credit was given to her as, as somebody who had an individual creative voice, which was totally different. But they, when you look at their quilts, you can see, you can trace them back to those earlier works too. I really like the very early quilts that are made that um, there uh, is a beautiful uh, interview with uh, the granddaughter, I think it is, of um, one of the Petway women, or a lot from named that because Petway was one of the slave old owners. And the granddaughter talk, uh, talks about um, her grandmother uh, having her help her cut the clothes from her husband who had just died. And he, he so she was taking all his old work clothes to uh, to make the quilt. And then she said she was gonna wrap herself up in love. And I almost started crying when I, I I've, you know, it was, it's such kind of a beautiful way to uh, keep somebody's memory going too. So, so those quilts are, uh, I think they're really loaded with history and with, with meaning, uh, not only from design, but from, from their social value of, of their, uh, the way, their way of life. In the Two Cabins Project, and the Two Cabins Project is comprised of many works, films and uh, the cabins that you made mm -hmm. on your property to scale, and the drawings after um, artists like Trailer, you also made a quilt. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about the role of that with or both within the large object? I'm very interested in what you were saying earlier that it was mainly women who make, made quilts and that there's a, a gender uh, connected to certain kinds of art practices. And back in the 1980s, uh, mid 80s, I made uh, uh, American Dreams, which showed here last night. When I was making that, I decided to uh, make a replica of a Milwaukee Braves jacket. And so I found an old jacket of mine, cut it up, and used that as a pattern. And then when I was living at New York at the time, and I went to the fabric area in New York and bought very fine wool, and then I taught myself how to knit because it has knitted uh, cuffs and tops. And I was also doing a, a tour of my films in the South, so I was flying, the hub was Atlanta, so I was flying like this and that. And on the plane I was knitting, purposely, to knit in public because of this kind of idea that uh, there's certain, these kind of genders assigned to certain tasks. And I didn't want to be afraid to make something that wasn't that, uh, that I wasn't supposed to be dealing with, right, because of gender. And I really, um, from making that jacket, I really liked sewing. It was very relaxing and that. 
So then when I made the two cabins project, uh, I made some uh, replicas of, of the quilts by the Cheese uh, Bend people. And, um, but I, I also realized that quilt making is a group activity and quilting is, takes a lot of time to the actual quilting where you sew you know, patterns into it. Not, the sewing of the pieces together takes time, but the quilting of it really takes a lot more time. And that's generally done by a group. So I ended up never doing quilting, but I would make the mm -hmm. patterns. And then I'd sew, them, sew it together in a, a different way that it wouldn't be so time consuming. But I like the act, idea of, of uh, the relaxing part of, uh, and, and you can't do it in a hurry, it takes time. That was all very uh, good for me to learn as, um, to apply to my other art practices. What I could learn from that then could be applied. I wouldn't have to be so anxious to finish something so quickly. So it was calming in a sense. Mm -hmm. One of the hallmarks of your filmmaking that, that often is talked about is the structuring of a work and how, um, how the temporality of, a sh of shots within a film make a structure. And there's a set of, sometimes a, a consistent framework that seems to, like in a film like 10 Skies, there are 10 shots, each of the same length. And other films are structured differently, but, but this guideline is very worked out. But within these long shots, looking is really slowed down. And it's clearly true in Stemple Pass, which has four shots, four static mm -hmm. shots of 30 minutes. This idea that looking takes time or attentive looking requires an active viewer. Uh, do you connect it in some way with what you've just been talking about? Or did it, this come out of different sets of experience and learning? Well, I think over time I realized that uh, I learned from many different ways, from what my parents told me, what my teachers told me, from reading a book, and then uh, from my own observation. And I also like the idea that when we, uh, we learn something, when we experience something, it, it's... Um, it's understood by what we've, what we've accumulated before. And sometimes when you learn something here, it contradicts what you learned before. So you can react to that in two ways. You can say, no, I'm wrong now, and this prejudice that I had before is what I want to continue with. Or you can say, oh, now I have to question what I learned before. And those kinds of things, uh, I think, are really valuable, and that one can't conclude immediately which is right and which is wrong, but it, it allows us to um, make some kind of uh, understanding that things change or we have a different perspective now, and that maybe we can keep our eyes open some more and get more information and make some kind of... Um, 
sense out of what happened here and what happened there. So my, my goal always is to, to learn from observation. And then uh, that's a hard work and it takes time. So my films started to place the audience in that same respect. And uh, that can be very frustrating because um, most people are, are, the way films have, are structured in the dominant cinema, they don't do that. They want to tell you what to think. And I'm asking you to consider what to think rather than telling you what to think. And that can only be done through kind of extended periods of time. And all, all learning, I think, takes time and observation is, for me, one of the strong ways to learn rather than being told what what's true and what isn't. So I think that's what you're asking. Yeah. 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 And, and you, over decades, you've found different, um, you've put into play different relations between image, text, and sound to both um, to probe this mm -hmm. and to to kind of galvanize a viewer to work hard. Um, yeah, I'm not afraid to ask a lot of my audience. And, I'm, and I also realize that I can lose audience too because of that, because not everybody uh, comes into the theater with wanting to learn. They want, might want to be entertained. And I just don't make entertaining films. All oh, they're entertaining on their own terms if they are entertaining. Have you found it different working? You've made installations in art galleries and museums for a long time, but in recent years, probably more frequently than you did in the past. And uh, what, what we have here with Stemple Pass has been shown in a in a broader context of works that connect to two cabins. Mm -hmm. Here it's positioned in relation to two text works which have extracts from Thoreau's writing written in a facsimile hand. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you feel about audiences in museums as distinct from audiences who go to the cinema? After all, they know in advance more or less what kind of situation they're going to sit in a dark space and look mm -hmm. at a screen and it's going to be an of an approximate length between an hour and two hours but working in an art gallery situation it can take any or many mm -hmm. forms I've, after the screening yesterday i talked a little bit about this um, the idea that the contract in a uh, theater screening is so strong that it I actually claim that it's stronger than life because outside of this theater, do you uh, seldom stare at something for an hour and a half without turning your head away? Uh, so that um, the kinds of ideas that I had in films were ideal for the contract of a cinema, okay? Mm -hmm. and. The difference, I mean, in installation work in, in a, uh, a gallery or a museum, uh, you don't have that contract. Uh, it, that doesn't mean that 
uh, it can't be developed. And I think uh, it's perhaps harder, And but installation work has been around for a while now, so some audiences are getting a little bit smarter with how to watch these. And of course, you can, you can, um, you can make installation work that's easier to consume, that it doesn't matter when you enter it or when you exit it, that you can get a quick understanding of it, depending on how you build it. If maybe it's just a visual piece with four screens and they kind of do light around or something like that. So it does, there isn't a duration necessary, but a lot of mine, I'm still working with durational work like this piece here. So this almost has to be approached uh, as a theater piece, and it's actually in a theater, which is nice. Now, the problem, I suppose, is that we don't have a, a sign out saying when it starts and when it ends. That probably could be helpful. Um, although I also like the idea that uh, people will go in there and sit down and watch some of it, and maybe not all of it. Um, and depending on what time they come in, they get a, they might only see the image with ambient sound and leave before there's any text and not realize that this is a completely different film. And the way the film is designed is there, it's shot in four different seasons. And I didn't put them in order. It starts in spring and then it goes to fall and it goes to winter and then to summer. And then there's, uh, the, each shot is approximately a half hour long, I believe. And uh, after a few minutes, there's somewhere between 12 and 15 minutes of text that is read. And it's four different categories of texts written by Kaczynski at different times in his life. The earlier texts are, they're all from his diaries, and the earliest diaries are about how he's trying to uh, uh, figure out how to live on his own in the wilderness, how to hunt, how to gather. Uh, and so those, those, are, those entries are a little easier to take. And then there's uh, entries where he's talking about things that he's doing that are criminal, bomb making and, and uh, maiming people and being uh, disappointed that he didn't kill somebody. Uh, so he's being kind of very honest with what's, what is, what's in his mind. And then the, one of the last entries is part of the manifesto that was published in the Washington Post and New York Times. So that's more theoretical and it's, it's uh, more about the, his ideas of technology and how, uh, how dangerous technology can be uh, and what it's doing to us. And, I think he's maybe quite correct on a number of those levels. I don't think he's, his method uh, to begin with was correct, which I don't think was political at all to begin with. I think it was came out of frustration and anger because of the way his life was lived. And, uh, but he's a very complex person, and he, I, I find that I still want to listen to parts of what he has to say. So when you watch the film, you'll see uh, that landscape with his cab, the replica of his cabin in it. And then when, once you hear, and I'm, I'm the person reading the texts, the texts are so, uh, 
I don't know, for me, so interesting that I forget what I'm even watching and I just listen to the text. And then when the text goes away, the image is there again and it's there for about 15 minutes. So how you consider that image is completely changed by the, the information you hear uh, in, in his writings. Uh, so that I find very interesting about um, the way we, uh, we, we, uh, we look is changed by the language that we heard. Uh, and so this piece ideally should be in a theater and seen that way. And I'm hoping that if some people might not know what it's about, see some of it. And the nice thing about installations, and especially at this museum where it's free, you can come back and you could watch it again. And maybe you come back again and you see a different part and then maybe finally you'd watch the whole thing. So that could be a way of, of educating an audience on how to, how to watch that. But um, it's still perhaps putting a little bit too much uh, emphasis on the audience figuring it out rather than us as the maker and the curator and the museum figuring out a way to uh, guide the audience into seeing, seeing it properly. So, uh, so I'm very much interested in, in building installations that still contain um, time element to it, but I'm also interested in building uh, loops that are shorter too that uh, are uh, understood quite quickly and those seem to to uh, could be a way to introduce audiences to to installation work something that's shorter than such a difficult film as this but i am so proud to be uh, in this show and to be kind of the conclusion of the show because i think uh, the works can, once you uh, see Stemple pass, I think you could go back and re-look at the whole show with a whole different political point of view that it, it might re-inform the way you, you look at all these works. Because I think all, the, all these makers are caught in a particular social situation and I think they're all there, it's all being said like that. So it's very much like Kaczynski in a sense. They're all um, have lots to say. It may not be about killing people and about the problems of technology, but it's about life and death in another sense. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm glad it kind of concludes or that it's the last thing. Uh, hopefully people will, um, I mean, it's an exhausting uh, um, installation of work too, that it uh, really takes more than a day or two to look at the shots. So I, I mean, maybe I should ask you that question too. How do you, I mean, when you uh, curate such an exhaustive uh, collection of works, um, what, what expectations do you have of audience? Uh, this, for me, is an exceptional show. It's taken nearly five years to bring to, to conclusion. Um, I, it's a show that is very demanding. 
It's ambitious and it's demanding. And I think it benefits from being seen more than once. Mm -hmm. So it's, its ideal audience is a local audience or someone who comes for a couple of days and can go back. Um, I think there's always the question of how much you can see. It's, it's also complicated by the fact that there are 80 something artists and for very many people, and I would have been in the same position five years ago, half at least are probably not known. And to be encountering artists you've ne whose work you've never seen before takes a lot of concentration and energy. And then to put them into dialogue or put their works into conversation is, is another layer. So I, um, but I think many of these works uh, and makers are remarkable and that there are many, one doesn't have to get all that I intend to have rich and, and valuable experiences. So I, I'm not sending a bar for what mm -hmm. gets, you know, and not expecting that we all come away with the same sets of understandings. We won't and don't. And I think that as one gets older, what one gets out of a work of art depends on what one brings to it. And your own experience, life experience, and being in the world more and more shapes the kind of dialogue you have with the work. That's already a lot to say, but um, one of the things that come up a lot with works of art is the backstory, like how, how much is what you can begin to uncover by looking and how much does some other kind of information mm. matter. And with the work of self-taught artists, again and again, it's felt that if you go to the biography, you will find the framework for an understanding of, the, of, of what's being made and that the work comes out of trauma or exceptionally difficult lives and it's somehow uh, revealed that the work is symptomatic of an experience. And I don't think that that is more true or less true mm -hmm. than um, with artists who've gone to academic through academic yeah. training, but we have different assumptions about them. And I hope this show breaks this down oh. because when you look at the work, if you take the first group of works you see, they're all, they all include textiles, they were all made uh, in ways that seem to be gendered. They have to do with craft, with women's work, with, they all have to do with some kind of hierarchy between, or I, classificatory system that crosses between painting and sculpture and craft. And, and those things, if one pursues them in looking from one to the other, wills, will be a rich dialogue. Mm. And it doesn't matter which of them, and I don't think one can say by simply looking at the work, which artist had academic training, which one ones didn't, who had fireside training, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Because, and those are not the first questions that the works really can, can be mobilized to uncover a set of questions to reveal aesthetic form and, um, and, and the kind of exploratory, innovative um, sets, of, sets of ways of making and thinking about the world without recourse to biography. So going back to your question yeah. of way back, um, 
I think having the having Stempel Pass toward right at the end is invaluable because uh, the minute one thinks Ted Kaczynski, a whole set of preconceptions come into play and spending time in the film, looking at the landscape as, as the, your voice um, reads from the diaries and then with the silences and putting those into counterpoint, you start to think differently, not just about the way he's positioned by the media, but the, the value of some of what he had mm -hmm. to say and the reprehensibility mm -hmm. of other parts mm -hmm. of it. And it's not simple. Yeah, and when, when I did the Two Cabins project, it, uh, when I began, uh, it was kind of similar to when I made American Dreams and I had, uh, had Henry Aaron as one of the people in the film, and then I was looking at baseball cards and using speeches and uh, music from the 25 years that he played baseball. So it's this kind of coming in age, but it was, it seemed too cute for me. So I wanted to add a counterpoint. So I added Bremer, which in that film, Bremer is really the opposite of, of what Aaron was uh, in many ways. And, but he's a much more tragic figure than Aaron, even though Aaron's was, uh, from a poor black community in Alabama and and fought through the minor leagues and uh, when black ball players couldn't stay in the same hotel rooms as others. So the, 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 a lot of those problems uh, Aaron lived through and uh, had much harder life in a, in a sense than Bremer. Anyways, when I made the Two Cabins Project and I added Kaczynski to it, I thought he was going to be like Bremer, but it, as the more uh, uh, information I learned about Thoreau and Kaczynski, I saw that they had very much in common. They both were environmentalists and they both were radical politically, and, and that Thoreau also had uh, supported uh, terrorist, uh, terrorist John Brown, uh, so that all of a sudden I, there was the complex uh, between those two characters wasn't like good and bad in the Bremer uh, 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 Aaron story. This was something that all of a sudden was very much more complex and, and just as tragic in a way. But uh, so that that was very interesting for me. I think it's interesting too how uh, generally how little is remembered about Thoreau's connections and with the say the Underground Railway, his support mm -hmm. for John Brown, mm -hmm. um, his essay on civil disobedience. But if you look back in the exhibition in the late 30s and 40s, there are a number of works uh, painted, there are three specific works that I chose by uh, Horace Pippin, William H. Johnson, and Henry Bannon, all of which feature uh, John Brown, who is a very popular subject for artists of the time and, and in the culture at large. He was one of the heroes as an abolitionist at a time when Lincoln too was mm -hmm. a very um, a very high profile. Um, and so the exhibition 
brings those, um, those themes to the fore in Pippin's painting, in particular of mm. John Brown going to his hanging, is one of the great paintings of yeah. the 40s. And the understanding of that historical moment vis-a-vis -vis Brown's role uh, against what um, we've forgotten about Thoreau and in relation to Kaczynski, again speaks to some of these issues and the way they surface and how history is written. And I think what comes out in this show, but comes out in the work of many, many of the artists mm -hmm. in it, in, and yours certainly, is that history is written by those who have power. Mm -hmm. And whether it's the Kara Walker prints out there that take, the, take illustrations from Harper's um, illustrated history of the Civil War, blow them up and rework them to put in images of others who were present who have no voices in mm -hmm. the official narrative or Sam Doyle painting Lincoln in Frogmore when he, Lincoln stops on the way south and frees slaves, something that's not in the official record but is certainly part of collective memory and law on St. Helena Island. Those questions about not just how art history is written but wider histories are very vivid presence, I think. And I also wanted to mention when you're saying uh, we're not quite sure who is outside, what, when it changes. And when I came in, uh, came in with Jim Nutt and Roger Brown, those just seemed to be, the, I couldn't distinguish between the two at all. And between them and those works that I've seen before that, and of course they were very influenced by Joseph Yoakum uh, and, and uh, uh, other some other. Well, I don't know. Did they know Darger? But I know Yoakum. They 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 discovered and visited him and collected a lot of his work, uh, and you can see uh, he, they've been influenced by by him, which is very yes. interesting. Stylistically, and also as a mentor, as mm -hmm. someone who yeah. followed, and they say this very mm -hmm. explicitly, as someone who carved an independent path, yeah. who followed yeah. um, his own convictions. Yeah. And they embraced the work without qualification, and when they curated shows or invited into shows, they put his work or mm -hmm. Martin Ramirez's work along with theirs, mm -hmm. very yeah. directly. Yeah. Amazing. Should we take questions or? Yeah, sure. Yes. Are there questions? We we have maybe five to ten minutes. If anyone has a question. Um. So first, thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Cook and the National Gallery for bringing James Benning here. Uh, I also want to thank John Kinnack from um, Colgate University some twenty years ago. I was able to first see you and your, your work. Um, I saw El Valley Centro that we, mm -hmm. that we showed, that we showed, and uh, you know, your work, I, I, I found myself literally at the edge of my seat in watching it. And it, mm -hmm. it, I think it could be the most striking piece of film that I've seen in terms of the moment that I experienced it. Mm -hmm. Whoever trapped on a desert island, there are certain shots that I can replay mm -hmm. <laughs> from memory from the one time that I saw it. Also, thank you for putting your work on DVD. 
Yeah. Originally, I, I was going to have to buy a used print and then rent a projector mm -hmm. for some two to three thousand dollars, but I was willing to do it. Yeah. Never did. Uh, what were you? Well, I'm curious. You mentioned John Connect, who's a great friend of mine and taught filmmaking at Colgate University for many years. And he's the person who really introduced me to a trailer. He owns a trailer uh, painting himself. He has a lot of uh, Mose Tolliver's work and a number of other artists that are, are in this show. So he, he uh, and then uh, the, he was great friends with the guy in New York City, Ham, Hampel, Fred Hampel, yeah, who uh, collected a lots of, so I was able to see his collection through John Connect. And then so I would, um, was lucky enough to learn about these artists very early. And my daughter uh, was very interested in uh, um, Chicago artists. So she, she got us to go to, uh, Henry Darger's room before it was moved to the museum in, in the late 90s, so I was able to visit Darger's room before. I, a lot of uh, the work was taken out in the 70s, of course, but the room was still full, full of works, uh, uh, a lot of his collections, a lot of his comic book collections, all of that were where it was in there, and a lot of his paints were just on the table still in the room was darkened and then the learners had a townhouse who they rented they owned that townhouse to next door and mrs learner uh, mr learner had died but mrs learner was still alive then and she invited us in and on one wall she had portraits of all the vivian girls and they were all the names they each were named, and I had never seen those ever reproduced, or I don't know if you even know about those, but the, I realized then that he really had personalities for each of the the Vivian girls, and some of the the one with the heart that's in here, they're, they're named in that particular painting, which is quite wonderful. Uh, but he had actually made portraits of each, just their faces, yeah. Um, but uh, so yeah, I was lucky enough to, uh, and then I also met Moses uh, um, uh, Halver, who isn't in the show, but one of my favorites. And that's because you had certain criteria you were telling me. Maybe you can say something about that, about selection. The selection, I didn't want it to come down to my taste. Mm -hmm. I felt that in looking particularly at the historical section, what what would be most revealing was to think about which artists had been esteemed at the time, which had been given opportunities, who had been brought into the public discourse. So I, I took exhibitions at major museums of modern art to be the primary vehicle for work um, entering into visibility, although very often it was artists who were the advocates. Um, so in the first section, it's works that were shown, um, a lot of the artists were shown at the Museum of Modern Art, which was, a very, as it is today, a very influential museum. So that Horace Pippin and, um, and many in the second gallery, whose work was seen to be part of a tributary of which uh, Henri Rousseau, great French 
artist was Fountainhead and Touchstone. So those artists were, were chosen by Bar Alfred Barr, the director, and other collectors like Duncan Phillips, and much, um, given much support at the time. In the 70s, it's, there are several exhibitions and the, just this very strong um, activities on the part of Jim Nutt and Chicago imagists, paint, young painters in Chicago in the late 60s in support of artists like um, Joseph Joachim and Pearlie Wentworth and Martine Ramirez. But for the Southern Black artists, uh, sometimes called folk artists by anthropologists, uh, the work that I, the work that came to prominence in the late 70s did so by, through its inclusion in an exhibition called Black Folk Art in America, which uh, opened at the Corcoran in 1982 and toured the country. And it was comprised of 20 artists, each of whom was shown in depth, so maybe 15 to 20 works, some of whom had been known before, like Trailer and William Edmondson, some like Sister Gertrude Morgan or James Sunford Thomas, who hadn't been seen really outside a small orbit of their communities. And this really changed understanding of uh, how much, what a rich vein of work there was coming from the South and how much of it had been made by African-American artists who had not gone through the credited channels of art school and so forth. And then the third <clears throat> chronological period, beginning in the late 90s, doesn't have a single exhibition as its, its filter, but uh, nonetheless, the artists whose work, whether photographically based, like Eugene von Brinchenheim or Morton Bartlett, or the G-Span quilters, their work had been shown in places like the Whitney and had received considerable attention as work that needed to be thought about in the context and maybe on a level playing field now, finally, or again, as in the 40s, with, um, with artists who, who were uh, already familiar as um, part of a, the vanguard orbits. Are the G's Ben quilters the only ones to get a postage stamp? Uh, no, Martin Ramirez. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. No, I, at I least have his, I have those. Them. Yes. That was just currently, like a year or two ago. And maybe Trailer did at one point, though not, I don't, you don't think sure. so? And what about music, um, like Sister Mary, uh, or uh, Gertrude, what's her, I'm sorry. My Sister Gertrude Morgan? Yeah, Morgan, she did some music. Uh, yes, the record um, is in, in the vitrine display case, mm -hmm. along with several important catalogs. And there's a photograph of her in that room. If you press a button, you hear uh, her singing one of the songs. She created visual work in service to her evangelical calling. And at Jazz Fest each year in New Orleans, she'd sing, uh, she would have a booth in the tent and sell her work, her visual art. And, and that combination is not rare. I mean, there are other people too. Howard Finster, mm -hmm. there's a recording of Finster also uh, singing and playing and photographs of um, Paradise Garden, the environmental um, site where he built a chapel and other buildings where people could come and experience his work and acquire it. 
and the uh, not getting his name uh, the man from Milwaukee who photographs his wife Eugene von Bernstein. yeah and he he also did uh, sculptures with uh, with chicken bones in that, or mm -hmm. any of the, I didn't know those aren't in okay. No, they're very, very fragile. Yeah. But I, um, in particular, I also wanted to put the photographs that Eugene and Marie made together mm -hmm. in dialogue with Zoe Leonard and uh, Morton Bartlett and others, where the idea of the feminine pin up the starlet, all those mm -hmm. uh, stereotypes are being constructed and deconstructed. Yeah. Well, Morton Bartlett <laughs> takes that on. Measuring change I shot uh, on my birthday uh, in 2015, which is December 28th. And um, it, I shot it at the Spiral Jetty. And I had made a film before that called Casting a Glance, which I think might have shown here a few years ago. And uh, it I made in 2005 to 2007, and I made 18 trips to the Spiral Jetty. Um, and during that time, the water level, uh, coincidentally, the first time I went there was exactly, it was at 41,000. Uh, 95.3 feet above sea level, which is the level the water was at when Smithson built the jetty. And then over the year or two years that I filmed it, it went up and down, so it completely got covered with water and it completely almost out of the water, which was the way he had it designed because the water level fluctuates two to three feet every year from uh, uh, snow melt uh, runoff and then from uh, evaporation so that the water level does this in the jetty as this kind of barometer for change. And then in the uh, 80s, the lake uh, rose something like 10 or 15 feet and the jetty was underwater for something like 25 years. And then it came out in the early 2000s and that's when I started to film it. So I was able to recreate its whole history over this two years because they had water levels that could be mapped onto the water levels that happened. And then for the film that you're gonna see now, uh, I went there to do another, uh, I wanted to make another film because the water level had dropped four feet and the, the lake uh, receded. Uh, well, you'll see in the film, it's almost a, a kilometer away or uh, three quarters of a mile away from, so the jetty is completely out of the water. And I never had filmed it that way in the first film. So I wanted to uh, make a record of that as an, kind of an addendum to the first film that I made. But it turns out to be a completely different kind of film than uh, the first one. If you had seen the first one, this is a much different experience. Uh, and uh, I think it's a very interesting film, so I hope you'll stay and watch. All right. You've been listening to a National Gallery of Art film program podcast. 